Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show proper, I've got some exciting news. We're turning Material Matters into a fair this September as part of the London Design Festival. It will be running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at the Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, across four floors that will each tell a different, distinct, and I think generally fascinating material story. If you're looking for somewhere to exhibit at this year's festival, drop me a line at grant at materialmatters.design. That's grant at materialmatters.design. So, my guest this week is Carl Clerkin. Now, in my opinion, Carl is one of the most original and certainly one of the wittiest designers currently practising. He graduated from the now-defunct furniture course at the Royal College of Art in the late 90s, a time when many of his contemporaries were dreaming of fame and fortune with a glamorous Italian manufacturer. However, he steered a very different, more local course. His work, which ranges from industrial to fine art pieces, is always imbued with a sense of narrative and not a little charm. He's also a teacher at Kingston University and has curated shows such as the Learned Society of Extraordinary Objects at London Somerset House to where he returns this month as part of the gallery's new show, Eternally Yours, an exhibition about repair, care and healing. Carl, thank you very much for doing this. I say no worries, but you know I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you are nervous. Why is that? You're not enjoying this I don't kind know, of thing. Grant. As you know, I'm comfortable having a chat with anyone in a pub. But yeah, I'm, I suppose I'm just worried about hearing this back. <laughs> well don't be i'm sure you'll be fine i'll look after you in the next hour i promise good so tell me we're on zoom you're in a slightly echo- echoey room it's disturbing me because echo is bad for podcasters but i think we'll get away with it so where are you this isn't your home and it's presumably not your studio no none of the two i'm in the west wing in a meeting room in somerset house yeah first time i've been in this room so yeah, much more grand than my home or, or my studio, which is a, actually a tiny little shed at the bottom of my garden. But not as comfortable as either, yeah. We have a tradition on this show of kind of asking people about their places of work, because I think it shows a little bit about them. Let's pretend you're in the you're bottom of your garden. Can you describe your studio for us? It's a shed that I built about three years ago. She used to share a studio with a lovely John Harrison in Shoreditch, Sunbury Works. I was getting in there less and less. And in the end, it kind of felt like, because of my work as a teacher, a tutor at Kingston, it felt like I needed to be able to access a studio, you know, if I needed to through the night. And I live in the suburbs in southeast London for my sins. And so, Orpington, right? Oh, you said it. I don't know. I'm not a big Alpington <laughs> fan. It's, it, I, I sort of ended up there rather than <laughs> be there a choice. So it kind of made sense that, that I have something that I can kind of just drop into. When I used to live in London, it was fantastic because I had a studio not too far from my place in Dalston. It was much easier to manage the two things of teaching and pretending to run a practice, especially when my kids were young. I was able to kind of get home, have a bit of dinner, and get the kids down, and then go to the studio for a couple of hours. So, it, um, but not being able to access the studio in that, in that way meant that I was struggling to kind of take on work, if you like, or commit to things that, that where I wouldn't wasn't able to use the sort of all the hours in the day, if need be. 
So what's in your shed, Carl? What does your shed look like? It looks like any normal shed, really, but it's quite sweet. I think it's cladded on the inside with loads of bits of material that I've sort of salvaged over the years, uh, offcuts. So it's like a patchwork of fantastic bits of material. It's predominantly a kind of workspace. The walls are sort of lined with tools and shelves for screws and all of that sort of stuff. And then it has a tiny little office that's kind of just, a, I suppose, just trying to be a little clean space in, in there as well. And with the idea that, yeah, I don't have to sit at the kitchen table doing that kind of thing, you know, sitting at a computer. Although during COVID and lockdown, I did end up sitting indoors mostly doing Zoom calls with students. The internet connection is not great up there, so that's why I ended up indoors. <laughs> What's your process when you're making or designing something then? I mean, you're very materially driven, hands-on tools, or are you sitting at your desk on CAD or something? I think most of the thinking is not actually sitting at a desk. I tend to do a lot of the thinking while I'm traveling. I go backwards and forwards to Kingston a few days a week on the train, and a lot of that stuff is kind of done just in between places. And I never really have been able to do that, like to go and just sit down and go, right, I'm going to have a brilliant idea now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Actually, I think that in most cases, a lot of what I do, I've kind of thought about it that maybe it doesn't relate to a job at a time, but it's kind of just stuff that's being stored, if that makes any sense. And then when the appropriate job or moment comes, I try and tap into that sort of thing. So are all these ideas stored in your head or do you sketch or how does that work? I do sketch. My sketchbooks are, they're a mess and my drawings become, I should say, more efficient. <laughs> I have a lot of conversations with William Warren, as you know, I used to work a lot with William. Your fellow designer. Yeah. And you look at his sketchbooks in there. I mean, he's an incredible drawer mm. and everything looks just great in his sketchbooks everything mine's a lot of scribbles and notes and yeah it's kind of a mess but it's just that when I'm drawing I'm not really trying to draw the thing I'm not really drawing details so much it's just a way of kind of just recording I know I've had I mean and it always happens with the truly brilliant ideas that I've had is that I forget them <laughs> <laughs> all the brilliant ideas I've ever had have actually been forgotten. And have right? never happened. It have oh, never man. happened. But I guess it's just a, it's just a way of kind of making a, a note and just making sure that it's captured, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, let's talk about the, your latest idea or wheeze, brilliant or not. I mean, we'll talk about where you are. So you're installing this new show that you're doing, Eternally Yours, which opens 16th of June. It's a show that according to the press blurb, invites visitors to appreciate the worn and aged, uncovering the history and emotional value of the items we hold on to rather than discard. So it's about repair and mending and a narrative, essentially. Uh, includes a bunch of people who've been on the pod, in fact. Celia Pym, Jaslyn Kerr, Peter Marigold. And you're opening something called the Beasley Brothers Repair yeah. Shop. So what's going on there, Carl? So Beasley Brothers, I suppose, was in Islington on Murray Grove. It was a real shop. And it was the shop that you would take your television to, to be repaired, or equally, you might go and get your puncture fixed on your bike if you was... So they repair absolutely anything? They did. They repaired anything. Mm. And they were... I don't know if, it's, if I've kind of created this legend in my head that there was three brothers, the Beasley brothers, 
and one of them couldn't see and one of them couldn't hear. No. And the other one was imaginary. (laughs) (laughs) And we always used to say that, I think it was Charlie, the one who couldn't see, he fixed televisions and the one who couldn't hear done the radios. (laughs) And Elf, who was, no one ever saw Elf, but the legend goes, the legend goes that if you had a repair done and you didn't leave it in overnight, that meant that one of the other brothers done it. But if you left it in overnight, you got a better fix with Elf. <laughs> so I need to unpick this. How much of this is true? You know what, Grant? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've been through it with Danny, who I've worked with, who I worked with on the, the Society show. Yeah. We were trying to kind of write a bit of a treatment. And it's a bit like, well, actually, was that true? You know, like Danny would tell you that every fix was 50 pence. I'm sure that wasn't true. I suppose what I was interested in thinking about Beasley Brothers was, it was a time when, not too long ago, I mean, I think we still would take a television there probably in the late 90s. But then what happened was you started to be able to buy televisions. You know, you do your shopping in Sainsbury's and at the end of the aisle, you could buy a flat screen television for 100 quid. And so people, I think, stopped fixing things because new stuff and kind of emerging technology and, you know, flatter, better TVs were available literally like at the end of the apple's aisle you know so what i'm trying to do here at at somerset house is to have a just just kind of nod at that a little bit but we're not really fixing electricals if somebody came in with an electrical could you fix it Um, you know what are you handy with that kind of thing it would be more like if someone came in with let's say a a fan (laughs) yeah it's more like that i would turn it into a garden sieve (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I do have a, a student at Kingston who's going to come in and do a little bit of work in the shop and he's into doing electrical repairs. There was this idea that we could just fix anything. I try and explain a little bit how it's going yeah, to work. So we've got a shop, which I've built. It's a bit like my shed, but it looks like a shop from the outside and more like a workshop on the inside. We have a stack of reject abandoned or found components and I will be along with some students and along with some artists or makers who I'll be inviting in to do day shifts in the shop will make stuff from these abandoned scrap found components and so hopefully it goes like we've got a stack of stuff, a shop, so you've got goods in or bads in, as it should be, I suppose, and then goods out. And we'll just, we'll just stack up the stuff that we make. We still don't know what we're going to do with any of the stuff at the end. So maybe we're going to have some sort of jumble sale or something. You've done this kind of making as almost performance or making in front of an audience before. Yeah. Do you mind that? Do you mind being watched while you're doing stuff? I don't mind, Grant. I mean, I'm not getting off on it or anything like that. I'm not, I don't really like being on stage. So when I've done it before, I just get my head down and just focus on what I'm doing. And yeah, occasionally you'll have a nice conversation with the public. We've done live making in Hill's shop window before. Urkel used to give us a load of their reject components and we used to take them down to, is it Bobby Tracy, to the craft fair down there? Yeah. And we'd do a Windsor chair race. There was five or six of us and we'd kind of just knock out as many chairs the rest of the guys were mostly making chairs, but I was making kind of just strange random objects, really. I mean, we talked about drawing just now, and I think that's what I enjoy about making things. 
make it in a kind of spontaneous way. I call it drawing, really, but it's, yeah, it's kind of like just drawing in space, I suppose, drawing through objects. And it's something I've always, that I've always done. I'm keen also to talk a little bit about your relationship with Somerset House, because this isn't the first time you've done something like a major exhibition there in 2017. As you've mentioned, you co-created a show called The Learned Society of Extraordinary Objects, involved 30 artists who are all members of fictional society and everybody's wearing a fez. You say it's fictional. I say it's fictional. fictional. (laughs) I mean, some of the objects and the narrative that went alongside these were made up weren't they? So what was the thinking behind that? I'm trying to think about how to make this concise. Claire Catterall, who you know very well, I think. Yes, I do know. And she invited me to do, to consider or to make a proposal for an exhibition that might have been about Brexit. This was just coming up to the sort of big Brexit vote. And I went away and thought about all of that stuff and thought about how that might take shape in such a place as a like a, a building like Somerset House. And it led me to thinking quite a lot about, at the time, it became acceptable to just lie about stuff. So this is like, you can kind of like, what do you call it, post-truth and spin and all of that nonsense that we was having to put up with all of the... That we're still putting up with. It's just standard now. Well, it's endemic, certainly, in, in our ruling party yeah. at the moment. Anyway, sorry. The short story is that I think Somerset House, I think it was difficult for them to do something about Brexit in the end because they have to kind of be neutral or seem to be neutral. And of course, like you ask a bunch of creatives to talk about Brexit and it's only going to go one way. Um, <laughs> and rightfully, <laughs> rightfully too, right? So, so um, we didn't really talk much about it as a group, as a group of people who were invited to start this discussion, but we were kind of definitely remain, you know. Anyway, it didn't happen, but I'd started to talk to Claire about this idea of a sort of a European society or something that was the start of Europe and the idea that they might have been based at Somerset House. And then when it became clear that it wasn't going to be about Brexit, we sort of thought, well, it doesn't have to be about Brexit and you can still talk about all of that stuff about false histories and false truths and but we could do it a different way and maybe the subject would be about you know design or in this case ordinary objects is what we ended up talking about so it's important that there's a little gap between extra and ordinary in the title of the exhibition yeah it, yeah in the title of the show they're two separate words yeah yeah, yeah. so that was how it was sort of born when I say we, I'm talking about myself and my good friend Danny Clark, who I've done a few of these projects with. We just wanted to create a sort of experience of visiting a historic premises and being told a story about, yeah, people had been based in that building. We sort of said that, they were, that they'd been there since for 300 years. We were celebrating 300 years of the Learned Society of Extra Ordinary Objects in 2017. So the premise was that we told this story about the society and then we asked 30 designers, makers, artists to contribute by becoming new fellows and by contributing an object, an ordinary object that had an extraordinary story attached to it. That was the bulk of the show was that. But of course there, was, there were other elements that the artists or the makers that we asked to contribute 
we ask people specifically whose work ordinarily would deal with the ordinary. So people like Jasleine, people like Michael Marriott, people whose work kind of nodded towards or dealt with the ordinary in what they do ordinarily. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't having Marcel Wonders or, or the kind of design superstars, in other words? Uh, oh, no. Yeah. No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. So the sense of narrative. I mean, it's often really important to what you do. You've made little films around the uh, show you did at Gallery Esso on Brick Lane that we talked about. And you also made this wingback chair for a show called Please Sit at Fenton House, which is a National Trust property in Hampstead in 2019. There were speakers in the wings that if you sat in it, you could hear this this soap opera mm. going on, yeah. right? What was happening with the soap opera? Why do that? It was a nice show, wasn't it, that one? It was, yeah. It was a good show, yeah. Yeah, really nice. Gitta Gishventner had invited, I think, six, maybe six including herself, to make some sort of intervention in the rooms of the house, Fenton House. And the idea was that, I think she said that there was some bit of research or some bit of information saying the sort of general time that people spend in each room in a National Trust house is something like, I think it was like 10 seconds. But the average, the average time. What, they sprint through these places? Yeah, it's what, just how that people, just, and people just kind of walk in and walk out. <laughs> yeah. and, and part of that is because you're not, you're not encouraged to hang about. It's, you know, you've got to put little pine cones on all the chairs. You've seen it, yeah? And, and you're not allowed to use the furniture or anything mm. like that. So Gitter's brief was to us to, to make people stop, sit, and spend a little bit more time in those rooms. Fenton House, as you know, is kind of unique in a way that unlike a lot of other national trust houses, it's got stuff in there, like furniture and harpsichords. <laughs> yeah. A lot of yeah, harpsichords. I think it's 20, it's 20, 20 odd harpsichords. I don't know what the name for it. Had a harpsichord fetish, yeah, the, well, uh, the owners of Fenton House. I think, I think actually that the harpsichords have been gifted to Fenton House from some harpsichord museum or so i can't really remember they didn't actually right. belong to an owner <laughs> but i really like the idea that they did and that someone who once lived in that house had a lot of harpsichords and so i started to think about why would somebody want 26 harpsichords or whatever it is so i imagine the characters that lived in the house and i imagine that lady cressida who was the star of the show i imagine that she there was something behind her uh, collecting of harpsichords and that was that she was having an affair with the local harpsichord dealer. And, and, the, the, and the play that I wrote, which was an episode of a radio soap opera called Fenton House, that episode was where this kind of affair, that was when it became apparent that there was something going on between Lady Cressida and Mr. Harp. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, this is kind of an unusual thing for a person with a furniture design background to get into. The play centered around a piece of furniture that the chair faced, and there was some conversation about this piece of furniture by a Mr. Harp's sidekick or lorry driver, whatever, about where this piece of furniture came. And as he opened a drawer, there was a secret drawer or something that where Lady Cressida kept her romantic correspondence with Mr. Harp. And so it was very much about a piece of furniture. So when you sat in the room, you sat directly opposite the piece of furniture. 
and then the plot thickens. Certainly did. I mean, it's an interesting one, Carl. We've known each other for quite a long time. I think we first met towards the back end of the 90s. However, when I came to research you, I realised that there isn't much specifically about you on the internet. You don't have your own website, for example. Is that deliberate? It's not deliberate. It's a bit of a mistake and a bit of bad management on my part, really. But Grant, I used to have a website and it was more like a portfolio, I suppose, of things that I'd done in the past. I wasn't really selling anything. It was just, yeah, as I say, just kind of just somewhere that I could showcase things that I'd made. And then someone built this website for me. It was like a flash. I don't even understand it. It's like built on flash and therefore, you know, you can't, it don't work anymore. And I started to think, well, I need a website. But then I sort of thought, well, what am I doing? What am I saying that I do? You know, what, what do I need this website for? And so at the same time, like I've been doing for the last 30 years, is trying to work out what I'm doing, where I fit in all of this. And I'm going like, maybe I need to work that out before I put a website together. And so, of course, it's going to be probably 30 years before I do get a website. Well, where do you fit in, Carl? Have you got any answers to no, that? No, I don't, Grant, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. I had this idea about 10 years ago that I wanted to make sculpture. It's what I'd always wanted to do is to make sculpture. But I kind of felt, like I went to St. Martin's, done a foundation, and that was my thinking I'm going to go and make sculpture, that's it. And then I was confronted with this environment, which is the sort of art world where I felt like I didn't fit. I haven't got the right language to operate or move in that world. At least that's how I felt at the time. And so I kind of got into design by accident because it felt like, you know, you can make something and you can load it up with whatever you're thinking, narrative or loading ideas into objects I suppose but then you don't have to sort of be able to talk about it in the way that I felt that you had to if you were trying to move in that kind of art environment it's the chat that makes you the money though isn't it that's the thing yeah but you know I mean I'm not even talking about the money I'm just talking about being able to be comfortable in that world you know and I was not comfortable probably because I wasn't very confident about language I think you know and I always felt like, like I make things because I think I can articulate better through objects than I can when I'm talking about stuff, my work, I struggle with it partly because I think, well, actually that's why I make stuff because I'm better at communicating through objects than I am, you know, like, um, like this, like I'm struggling now, Grant, you, you know, <laughs> it. Say, you know like it, you know it, you know I mean, can we talk about your background, Carl? I think you're doing yourself a big disservice, by the way. But can we talk about your background? Because you were born in the East End in yeah. Hackney, I think. What did your What did your parents do? How big was the family? Um, my mum was a, a secretary for a local scaffold company and then some other firms that she worked for. My dad is a carpenter. I grew up in Kingsham Road in Dalston with two brothers, Cav and Keir. Big shout out to the boys. Lovely people. <laughs> really lovely. I mean, I'm blessed, you know, like I've, my brothers are amazing. One's an actor, one's an illustrator and animator. Yeah. Yeah, Cav's been in EastEnders. And- it, yeah, yeah. And, and just recently in um, The uh, Last Kingdom. Right. Father Pilgrim in The Last Kingdom, yeah. <laughs> Look out for yeah. him. Look out yeah. for him. And so how did the interest in 
design begin? Presumably through your father. Uh, I guess, I, I guess so. I mean, probably not in design, but in terms of making things. Yeah, I remember. I always liked making things. My dad, when he had time, would do things with us. Like he, made, I remember he made us the most incredible go kart. And then I also remember me and my brothers. We made catapults out of wire coat hangers. Um, at the back of where my mum lives, there's a factory. Well, I suppose it was an old factory that had the windows bricked up on the inside of the building. So we just smashed all those windows with our catapults. And my dad came <laughs> home, and I remember thinking, God, we're, gonna, we're in such trouble now. And he grabbed hold of one of these catapults. He's looking at it. It's a bit, he's kind of examining it and thinking, well, that's a bit flimsy, you know. He took us in the shed, and he laminated us. A new catapult. So that was my <laughs> first experience of like, wow! That you strip down some timber and you make a former, and then you can and then you can bend the timber and glue it into a shape. It's like some people look at the Eames leg splint, and I had a laminated catapult as my introduction <laughs> to laminating. So there was that, but I don't really know. I've always liked to make things, but I don't really consider myself to be a maker. If you know what I mean, yeah. I'm not a craftsperson. Certainly not a craftsperson, but I just like working things out physically. And I've always done that. My mum's like, she, she's got like a Victorian townhouse and she likes a dado rail, you know, and she'd have me fitting dado rails and fancy bits of cornice in there all day long if she could, you know. And so I just sort of feel like, yeah, I'm I kind of I'm a part practical and I, and I, and like I said, I, I wanted to make sculpture and then I fell into design because I didn't have to explain myself. It's like, okay, it's, it's loaded, it's got intellectual content, but at the end of the day, it's a chair. You know, we don't have to talk about it much more than that. Mm. But what were you like at school? Could you have followed other paths or were you always going to do design at, at Middlesex? I went design? to Central Foundation Boys School on the Old Street Roundabout. It wasn't a very good school. When I finished primary school, I was achieving stuff you're not going to believe it I was quite bright Grant and then I went to <laughs> Central Foundation and I just sort of unlearned is what happened I just unlearned mm. Mm. I think I was more interested in just being one of the lads and at that five years of secondary school really was about slowly getting kicked out of most of my classes my form tutor was an art teacher and so as I got kicked out of the say chemistry, geography, or, I mean, every subject, basically, I end up sitting in an art room with a bunch of sixth formers and making paintings, sculptures and drawing and being quite satisfied with that. And then, of course, my teacher, he was a brilliant bloke, really. He was like, well, if you're going to sit here, then you can do your GCSEs. Like, I'm like, 13 he's like you can do a GCSE in art at 13 yeah or you can go to this place White Lion Street and do photography I ended up with I think four or five GCSEs in art like photography <laughs> photography <laughs> art you know um art and design CDT when my year was sitting there GCSEs I was finishing up an art A level and then I went to the brilliant I don't know what it's like now but the brilliant Island Sixth Form Centre to do a kind of, it was like a pre-foundation course. It's just incredible, incredible environment. I've done an A-level in textiles, which is quite interesting. I was sort of in a queue to do, I think, A-level design and technology or something like that. And I'm looking across there and there's like a queue of girls 
queuing up to sign up for textiles and I'm like what's that what's that over there so I ended up being like the only bloke in this class it was so good do you get a good A level yeah 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 I can't remember again I've got a couple of art A levels a couple of free art, art, art A levels and then it just sort of kind of just went like that went to Middlesex had a great time met some brilliant people got into furniture design as I said by a kind of default really but in between there, there was St. Martin's. It was like a foundation course at St. Martin's. And that was it. Yeah, kind of stopped wanting to do art or sculpture and, and got into got into design. And then at Middlesex, I meet Michael Marriott comes as a tutor there, who really kind of encouraged me. He said I should go to the RCA. I didn't really believe him, but I went and sort of had a go at it. I mean, he seems to have been quite an important figure in your career, really, Carl. Yeah, I mean, Michael's a saint. There's no two ways about it. I think not just for me, but like, think about his contribution towards design education and not just design education. For me, it was it's a bit more like socially, politically, all of that stuff. I couldn't say enough about Michael and his, and his um, influence, you know. And philosophy, it seems to me. The first time I saw your work was at the Royal College when you won a competition set by the Edward Marshall yeah. Trust, I think. The kind of brief of which was one plus one equals three. Yeah. And you turned a wine bottle and a corkscrew into yeah. a lamp. So how did you do that? Um, making wine bottles into lights is an old idea. I remember my nan used to have a light fitting attached to a bit of bamboo stuck in a wine bottle with some sand in it or something like that. My nan was an incredible, like, what do you call it, frugal and quite clever in her use of things. I always tell this story about my nan that she had a leaking waste pipe and rather than fix it, she just put a potted plant underneath it. And that sort of summed up her approach to kind of getting by in a way. Mm. I just wanted to make a nicer connection between the light and the light fitting. There's something about that. Normally, or my experience of it at the time was normally people would buy a lamp. People like my mum would buy a lamp and then choose a shade that matched their wallpaper or something like that. And I like the idea that everything was kind of bog standard on that lamp and you'd show your taste in some way through your taste in wine. But also like what I really was interested in, and this is kind of the core of that idea, was that you could impart a sense of sentiment or history into an object. So, for example, like the light that that you're talking about, it comes... Shade, bulb, wired, socket, cable tie, and a corkscrew. How it's completed is by the user completing it by adding a bottle of wine to it. So, you know, that could be the bottle of wine that we celebrated Grant Gibson's graduation with. And therefore that now becomes part of that object. And that's what I was trying to get. And it's something that a lot of my students talk to me about. They want to do a project about sentimentality and it's quite difficult to do that. It's quite difficult to impart Mm. sentiment into an object. Are you quite a sentimental individual? Um, I I don't know. I don't know, Grant. I mean, I do, I have things that I like. I used to need to have those things physically around me, but I think that you don't really need the objects. The memory is enough, I think, for me. (laughs) 
You came out of college in the late 90s. And as I mentioned in my intro, there was an explosion of interest in British design at the time. The ambition of many, it seemed to me at that point, was to work for one of the big, glamorous Italian furniture manufacturers, a Capellini or B&B Italia. You haven't done that. Was that something you've ever hankered after? Um, I don't know. I don't know, Grant. I think when we left college, that was probably something that we aspired to. That's something that, you know, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, it sort of seems like your success as a designer is calculated, I suppose, by your output. And if your output, if you're seen to be having working with Magis or Capellini or whatever, then that makes you successful, I suppose. The more products you've got out there, the more successful you are. Yeah, I would have liked that work. It wasn't a choice. You know, I did not work for Capellini because I said, I'm not working for Capellini. They just never asked, they just never, they just never <laughs> yeah, asked me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I do think also that maybe the things that I do, they reference understated and perhaps everyday objects, things. Yeah. You designed a stool with broom handle legs and a bucket style swing handle. What is it about buckets, by the way? <laughs> they seem to be a recurring theme in your work. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're lovely, aren't they, buckets? I don't know. That's, <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. I what is it about buckets? That, I don't know where that comes from, that stall. When I was at the RCA, I had a project that bothered me for two years of making a pressed metal bracket that would allow you to attach a broomstick to a surface and then allow you to make tables, chairs, shelves, stuff like that. I was doing a bad impersonation of what should have been an industrial process on using a fly press. In the end, you know, once you've made a stall with three broomstick legs, you've just got to put a bucket handle on it, Grant, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the bracket went missing, and, then that, and that happened to be the bucket seat. And I showed that, I think, I think we was in Milan, I had a stand with Gitter at Satellite. Which is a place where young designers kind of gather. Yeah and, yeah, and a bloke came up. He was a German bloke. And he's saying to me, like in a German accent, and I could, he's saying oh, he wants to buy it. And I'm going, well, I've only got three of them, mate. And I, I promised my brother two. I'll probably keep one for myself. He went away and then he came back and he asked me again, could he buy it? And I was going, no, no it's not really for sale. What a dope I am, right? I mean, you go and do a trade show in Milan. <laughs> it's the biggest design yeah. trade show in the world and you're not selling anything else. <laughs> and then, luckily, we've become friends since Martin Shomish from a company called Details. Luckily, he came back and, he, and luckily, because I was sharing with Gitter and she obviously speaks German, he's like, I'd like to license this thing, you know, from this guy and I'd, I'd quite like to manufacture it, but your friend is so stupid that he's not entertaining the conversation. And of course, Gitter, she tore a strip off of me, you know, and made that introduction. And they don't sell a lot because they're quite expensive, but he's been making that ever since, from since 2000 or something like that. But it was you and, and say several others, like Michael Marriott, it seemed to me that your work and your thinking particularly kind of anticipated the anti-globalization shop local movement. Was this something that came naturally? Were you deliberately kicking against the kind of design world's prevailing wisdom at that point, I wonder? I think what happened about 2000 was everything went gold, right? It just seemed to be all about money. I would like some money, don't get me wrong, but I don't know. That luxury brands emerged, you know, this design art where yes design suddenly became art and it was fetching huge prices yeah yeah tables that don't have flat surfaces and that have bono's signature on them 
Bono, Bono. Bono. Just going for like 300 grand and stuff like that. You walk around Milan and apart from Magistrati's studio and Castiglione's studio, apart from that, you spend most of the week vomiting. I think that's why I like buckets, Grant. <laughs> but I did, I just sort of start, I, I don't know what them other guys are thinking, but I find most design that I see in places like Milan or wherever, I find most of it distasteful and vile and sickening, you know, and not needed. And then as you start to kind of get into that thinking, it's like, do we need more stuff? I don't know that we do. You know, if you're kind of using volume and numbers of output as an indicator of your success as a designer or a design thinker, then I'm failing massively because I'm not really that interested in it. <laughs> you did have a go at manufacturing though, Carl. Yeah, I did. All, all lovely stuff it was launched in 2010. Yeah. So why did you decide to do that and what, what happened there? I think why we decided to do that was because it was trying to maybe, oh, trying to make, um, Grant, the thing is, it's like ideas, I find they come quite easily. You know, and maybe it's because that's the part of the project that I'm interested in most. It's like that initial thought. So I was in a studio and I was doing some freelance work and then I was kind of developing speculative things and taking them to show manufacturers. And I just got, I got a feeling that actually maybe we can cut that out. If I can find someone to make this stuff, then we could sell it. But we still sell, you know, all lovely stuff. Not in the way that we were, because it was, it, it was all about serving wholesale into shops. So we just have a bit of stock in a shed, in another shed. <laughs> and the website's live and we sell some stuff as we go along. But it's not, you know, I don't really have the drive for it to go in three or four times a year to trade fairs to sell. And as soon as you're not selling loads of things, it's quite difficult to do that because it's quite difficult to get the products at the right price if you're not moving lots, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, as we've alluded to, you kind of went the other way and created a collection called The Other Way in 2013, which was shown at Gallery SO at uh, Brick Lane. It included a basketball hoop that catches the ball, lots of strange stuff happening with brushes and broom handles, an umbrella handle attached to a bike tyre entitled Spinning in the Rain like that one. Was that flexing your art muscle then, Carl? Persuading yourself you could have been a fine artist had you wanted to be? Yeah, I kind of, I mean, it was a bit naive on my part, really, because I thought all you need to make it as an artist was to buy a hat, get yourself a nice hat, and have a gallery that you could fill stuff in. But of course, I was showing in a lovely gallery, Gallery SO. I think it's closed down now. I think it might have done. Yeah, yeah I think he had enough with Brexit, and rightfully so, you know. I mean, mm. I just thought it was about the space. They were a, a fine art jewellers, basically, and they weren't the sort of people who was going to sell the stuff that I was making. And again, I think the show was a success in as much as I think I got a really good response for the, from the people who went, from, you know, visitors who went to see it. But... It don't go nowhere. I don't have a gallery. I'm not represented in that way. So it just felt like a, you know, like a kind of one-off exercise. But I'd like to do that kind of work much more. I just need for it to make sense, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, throughout all the press clippings I have on you, the words like witty and humorous come up time and time again. Obviously, I used it in my intro. Does that bother you? Do you feel it's incumbent on you to come up with something funny when you start a project? Um, It's not. It doesn't bother me. That's not the goal. That's not the aim, really. It's just, why not? I mean, some things are tragic, you know? Like, I think that chair, that black chair you talked about earlier, the speaker chair and the play that came out of that, it was fun. There was parts of it was funny, but I thought it was quite tragic in a way. Yeah, it was a tragedy. Um, You're not supposed to laugh as you say that, though. Yeah. But I tell you what, Grant, more than sort of set, like, kind of, you know, getting brilliant royalty deals with whoever it is and selling loads of stuff, more stuff that we maybe don't need, doing projects like the Learner Society and having people come around and you can see that they're really enjoying it. Do you know what I mean? And, and you know, you get, get people like laughing out loud. And you're just like, that's brilliant. You know, there's a fantastic reward for what we're doing. That's why I've been more interested in these kind of projects, which are a bit more, I guess, experiential. You know, it's kind of like looking at questioning the way that we, the way that we absorb things when we go around galleries, making it less about looking at things and trying to create an atmosphere or an experience for the visitors is what I'm interested in. And if that can become a sort of pleasurable or even comical experience, then that's lovely. I mean, I like that. I had a picture of Sheridan Coakley. We'd done him up as uh, Walter Warnock, I think his name was, and he was the founding member of the Learned Society. And there was a big portrait in a guild frame up in the main room above a mantelpiece. Because we had a gym bar in there as well. It's always important. Uh, society club uh, I was working the bar and a young girl came in and she said is it alright if I take a picture of that portrait up there and I said yeah yeah go on you go for it and then she took the picture and she said it's incredible how much that looks like my godfather and I was going oh, really she said I'm going to send it to him um, I said what's your godfather's name she said, she said Sheridan Coakley <laughs> There you go. Her godfather is the founder of SCP, who's been on the pod as well, by the way. I mean, it's just brilliant. That they just like kind of people just almost taking it seriously. Do you know what I mean? And we all of them yeah, portraits, yeah, yeah. you know, we made them portraits and they're like deliberately heads are 10% bigger, you know, than they should be. So it kind of, it's all a bit tongue in cheek anyway, and comedic. Talking about experiential, can we uh, maybe have a quick word about the Bodger Milano project mm. in 2010 that you did, where you and a group of designers, some of whom you've mentioned, William Warren being one, went to Clissett Wood in Herefordshire, learning how to bodge furniture. So making pieces without electricity, using pole laves, shave horses, you had a compost toilet. It seemed to have quite a profound effect on some of the people there. I know Gareth Neal in particular, William's chair got turned into a production piece for Case. And subsequently, Windsor chairs, briefly for a couple of years, seem to be everywhere. <laughs> Did you enjoy that, Carl? You know, Grant, did not you? You know. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it because I designed a chair, and I've since made that chair in different locations. We took that kind of approach to bodging. We went to Sitting Firm. We went to Lloyd Loom. 
I've made that chair or a version of that chair probably five or six times now. And I, I really like the chair. I just wish that someone else would make it. Because my standard of making, especially like on a pole lathe, is terrible, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I like the idea of it. I was more into just, it felt like going away for the weekend with some mates. That was what I was interested in. And then you get to making stuff and they've got like rules down there, you know, no sandpaper. And I just find that a little bit strange. It's like, it's a bit like you're running in a 100 metre sprint and you tie your, your laces of each shoe together. Why would you make something more difficult? <laughs> you know, why would you make something more difficult? And it's like to say, to what? To celebrate what? That I'm a brilliant maker. No, I'm not. I was so stupid down there as well because I'm like, the chair that I designed was basically trying to turn broomsticks. And you realise straight away that actually to turn a dowel on a pole lathe is quite difficult to do. I and mean, it's probably why them legs were shaped in such a way on old Windsor chairs because you can cover a multitude of sins and mistakes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I mean, I had a great time. I had a great time. But when you said, did you enjoy it? I kind of find that idea of working in that way a little bit regressive in a way. And I, I suppose I had in my head, it's like, I'd be making a much better chair if I had a bit of power and if I was in a workshop. And perhaps if I had a maker with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know you were quite right i was there on the first day and i came back on the last day and you could actually see some people had some kind of epiphany and it was going to change the way they thought and the way they they made i think up to a point it has for one or two of them but it didn't have that effect on you no not really not really Grant, I, I like the experience you know like in a way yeah like and i said we've done lots of that sort of thing since you know like the bobby tracy thing and but for me, that's just a nice thing to do, you know, and go away. Yeah, you know, you, you became get, a little, yeah, little you gang, go, yeah, basically, I, didn't I get you? to go away with William and Gareth and Guitar, and it's just a nice thing to do. And yeah, maybe I wouldn't have designed a chair if I didn't go down there, you know. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> no. no, fair enough. You've always taught, teaching has come up a number of times through our conversation as a thread. Why is it important to you, teaching? Well, I didn't really think about it like that before I get the opportunity to work with a bunch of young people who are trying to grasp that subject at the same time they're kind of probably starting to form where they are themselves socially politically and I find that really interesting I think my job you know like we don't have a house style suppose you know like at Kingston I don't think I could work in a university which is right this is how you design and this is what our students look like you know my job is I get to meet people I get to understand what they're about you know, their backgrounds what kind of things are kind of influencing their day-to-day -day lives and then hopefully being able to encourage them to impart that sense of self in the things that they make. And actually, we're probably moving away from designed objects. We're thinking about what that might be now. As part of this exhibition at Somerset House, we've got some second-year students' um, work in the show. I set them a brief to do with repairs, but we were talking about the kind of right to repair and asking them to kind of project into the future what that might mean, you know, like if there was such a legislation that meant that the responsibility of 
an object's life beyond its use went back to the manufacturer, then what would that mean? How's that going to affect the things that we design or the things that we don't design them? So there's some really, lo- really lovely projects come out of that. I was going to say, what did they come up with? That's an intriguing notion. Um, like some of them were a quite practical projects, like looking at actually manufacturing locally and being able to almost kind of assemble things yourself. And if you understand our an object is assembled, then you've got a better idea of how to take it apart and, and change things out. There's a project there by a group called the Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Electronics. And what they found out, these guys, was that because they, they started collecting e-waste, they went to the dump and they put adverts on for people to send stuff in or for them to be able to go and collect electronic goods locally. And they found out that I think it was something like 80% of electronic goods that goes to landfill. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's working. Mm. You know, people just change stuff out. People want, for some ridiculous reason, people want another Dyson. Do you know what I mean? So they get rid of one and they put it in. They were saying that sometimes it was just because they were dirty. So they made this lovely society and they're going to be showing something to do with that. It was really lovely to have a project it wasn't about a product necessarily as an outcome it was more about it's more about yeah having a having a philosophy or a or you know yeah kind of writing your own legislation and seeing where that goes Mm. really nice very good well we've bookended this interview neatly i think with repair which Mm. is lovely so after this show at somerset house this is the final question by the way what happens what's next for you i don't know i don't know grant i'm still going to just Pretend to work that out. Don't, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know, Grant. It's one of those things you sort of think, well, actually, I'm going to take a bit of time and I'm going to work this out. And then something comes up, like someone will ask you to design a bar and then you just kind of get distracted and don't really. Well, yeah. you don't have to know, Carl. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. That was lovely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries, it. man. And my thanks go to Carl. Eternally Yours, an exhibition about repair, care and healing, runs at London Somerset House from the 16th of June to the 18th of September. There are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, which has changed to material.matters underscore grant.gibson. And you can sign up to the Material Matters newsletter and find out all about the fair I'm launching this September at the Barge House, Oxotower Wharf at materialmatters.design. That's materialmatters.design. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.